the road less traveled. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we know it is trustworthy. We know that it is given for our betterment, to guide our paths, for our training in righteousness, for our correction. And we ask, Father, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And we ask, Lord, that you would impart wisdom to us through your inspired word and your spirit to take your word and impress it deeply into our hearts. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Some people, I trust not you, but some people sometimes focus on short-term success to the detriment of long-term significance or legacy. That's true in all areas of life. I want to illustrate it from the business world. As many of you know, there was a fast-growing company in the United States that began in 1985. It collapsed in 2001 and closed its doors in 2007. At its collapse in 2001, it claimed, I believe erroneously, that it was the seventh largest company in the United States. Of course, I'm referring to Enron. Enron somehow managed to sell futures, a wide array of energy futures, as though it were product, and it ledgered it as product, although, in fact, Enron was a middleman. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's suppose you and I are drivers of a Brinks truck. And we go from bank to bank, and because of the notes that are in the truck, we claim to be multimillionaires. That's essentially what Enron did. Now, when we talk about Enron, it can get political very quickly. I'm going to avoid that. Suffice it to say that from 1990 to 2001, they supported no less than 250 members of the House of Representatives and 71 members of Senate from both political parties. And CEO Kenneth Lay regularly golfed with both the Clintons and the Bushes. So neither political party rightly can put strictly at the other. But what happened? Well, Enron, through a wide variety of accounting shell games, claimed on their ledgers large amounts of product when in fact they were a middleman, and they continually posted gains when they had losses. And they often passed those losses off to other subsidiaries created sub-companies so that their ledgers looked like they were growing and growing and growing. Well, in fact, they were not. They were shrinking, and they had more bad debt than good product. They focused on short-term success in the eyes of society rather than long-term significance 
and a growing legacy. Just prior to its collapse in 2001, CEO Ken Lay divested himself of $145 million of Enron shares just prior to the pension plan losing 92% of its value for its employees, just prior to it becoming clear that $70 billion of investor income in the United States was wiped off the books. And you remember that Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm, was either inept or complicit in the accounting shell game that Enron performed. And you remember that a number of high executives were held accountable. I think of Andy Fasto, the CFO. He was indicted on 78 counts of money laundering, fraud, and equities exchange fraud. I think of Baxter, the well-liked vice president. Before he could go to trial, he was found slumped over the wheel of his black Mercedes, a 38 caliber self-inflicted in his head. I think of Dave Duncan. He was the Arthur Anderson accountant. He shared with Arthur Anderson at some point that Enron was in trouble, that this was an accounting shell game, and because of it he was scapegoated, he was fired, perhaps he should have been, but when he warned Arthur Anderson, you remember what the accounting firm did, it shredded many of the Enron documents before they could find their way into court. And then there was the CEO, he was indicted on 10 counts of security fraud and suffered a massive heart attack six weeks later and died at age 64. Enron limped along for another six years and then closed. What happened? In addition to a lack of accountability, a lack of integrity, what we have is a company that focused on very short-term gains often illicit short-term gains, rather than long-term significance or legacy. I would submit that that is not only a problem sometimes in the business world, it can be a problem in the spiritual world. Sometimes we come to Christ and we're all excited and we're red hot for the Lord, and slowly those hot embers become lukewarm and they become dying embers. Who among us does not know a friend or a family member, a spouse, a child, someone who may have prayed a sinner's prayer with us, and they were red hot for Jesus, they were alive for Jesus, and then slowly over time it seems like they worked farther and further away from their faith, and it gets to the point where we ask ourselves, did they really pray a sinner's prayer? Are they really born again? Do they really know Jesus? What happened in their lives? And I would suggest that sometimes spiritually people focus on short-term early success and then, and then they kind of coast in their walk and slowly they go from red hot from Jesus to embers and a lack of flame. That's what happened to Solomon. 
That's what happened to Solomon. He was hot for Jesus. He was hot for the Lord for the first 20 years. And then the last 20 years, it was all downhill. Let me pick up in 1 Kings chapter 9. Let's read verses 1 to 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, that is the temple mount, and the king's house, that is the palace, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, God came to Solomon at Gibeon and said, name it and claim it. Solomon's the only person who legitimately had a name it and claim it experience with God. And God said, name what you need, claim what you need, and I'll provide it. And you remember Solomon wisely said, I'm a young man, about 20 years old, and I'm ruling over this extensive kingdom. Give me wisdom. And God said, I love your request. I love where you're going. I'm not only going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you honor. That was the first time. Well, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if, don't miss the condition of that. If you will walk before me, as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then, this is an if-then clause. It's going to be repeated twice in this passage. If you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will bring judgment, damnation, discipline into your life. It's an if-then. Verse 5. Then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. And as I promised David, your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel for the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house, that is the temple, will become a house or a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by will be astonished. They will hiss. They will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God. That is why. 1 Kings chapter 9. It takes place about halfway through Solomon's rule. He rules for 40 years. The first 20 years, because of God working through Solomon, he had the Midas touch. It seems like everything Solomon touched turned to gold. Everything he endeavored actually was accomplished. He was a man that was world-renowned. You think back to 1 Kings chapter 3. We've already reviewed it. God comes to him and says, name it and claim it. He asks for wisdom, and God says, I'm not only going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you honor, and I'm going to give you riches. And then you go to 1 Kings chapter 4, and we learn that Solomon, unlike his father David, will be a man of peace. But as a man of peace, he will still preside over a magnificent and growing army and a magnificent cavalry, probably the best in the Middle East. 
And we also learn in 1 Kings chapter 4 that he's not only locally known, he's world-renowned. When Solomon takes a selfie, he blows up the internet. Everyone knows it. And then you go to 1 Kings chapter 6, and he builds the magnificent Temple Mount, the 37 acres where God's house resides. And then you go to the next chapter, 1 Kings 7, and he builds his palace, and he organizes and he administrates a great government. And then you go to 1 Kings chapter 8, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, he leads a magnificent dedication of the temple, and he leads all of Israel in worship. The first 20 years have gone exceptionally well, but then he focuses on that short-term success, and he begins to coast, he begins to spiritually drift, those hot embers for God become lukewarm. And he has 20 years where he decides to live for himself rather than the Lord. 20 years rather than focusing on long-term significance and long-term legacy, he begins to focus on himself. And just prior to that happening, God comes to him again in 1 Kings chapter 9. And God again comes to him and says, this is what I want you to do. If you will serve me, I will continue to bless you. But if you or your children fail to serve me, I will bring discipline on this nation. I will bring destruction on the city of Jerusalem. I will bring destruction on the Temple Mount, the place that I call my own, where my heart is, where my eyes are. I will bring destruction even there if you turn from me. I've got to stop and wonder. I've got to wonder how this message hits Americans today. We live in a country in which a large percentage believe in God. A much, much greater than 50% of our nation claims to believe in God. In fact, a much greater percentage of 50% claims to believe in the Christian God. But I would doubt that that's true. I would say many of us believe in a God that we create in our own image, in our own likeness. A God of love, but never of discipline. A God that allows us to do what we want, not to do what he has required. A God that doesn't set up standards, rather than the God of Scripture, who says, these are the things you must do, these are the things you must not do, this is how you must live your life. And that's precisely the God that comes to Solomon. The God who is consistent throughout Scripture. Who says, this is what you shall do. This is what you shall not do. This is how you should live your life in worship of me. Now when we first began this series in 1 Kings, I made a couple comments. This was back in September. I know it's on the tip of your tongue. You just remember these things from September all the way to December. And one of the things we noted is that throughout 1 Kings and 2 Kings, time and time again, perhaps like no other set of books, maybe except the Chronicles and Samuels, we have this, this formula, if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will bring discipline. There's probably no other section of Scripture that is as explicit as during the times from 1 Samuel all the way through to Second Chronicles, the times from David all the way through the kings into the captivity. 
Again and again, God says, obey me. I want to bring blessing in your life. But if you disobey me, I'm going to bring discipline into your life. A second theme that we see is how slow to anger and abounding in love God is. First and second Kings covers 400 years. It covers from 970 to 570 B.C. You think of 970. It's the golden years. It's still the undivided kingdom. The boundaries have never been better. Gold and silver and precious stones have never been as abundant. There has never been revival like in those years. But then we go from David to Solomon, or Saul to David to Solomon, then to Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and the ten northern tribes secede, and they become known as Israel, and the two southern tribes become Judah. And the ten northern tribes, they will last not that many years, 250. 250 years until 722 B.C. when Assyria will come and, and will take those northern tribes into captivity, essentially never to be heard from again. But during those 250 years, every one of Israel's kings are evil. Every one of them. Every monarchy is evil. Talk about a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. He said, if you obey me, I will bless. If you disobey me, I will be disciplined. And God gave them 200 and 50 years, 20 different monarchs to get it right. And without exception, they did not. And then you think of the two southern tribes. God gave them 115 extra years, 365 years. They had six godly monarchs and 14 ungodly. Little snippets of godliness in incredible idolatry and immorality and a lack of ethics. But our God, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, because of those six spots of light, gave him an extra 115 years, 365 years to get it right. And finally, God said, enough is enough. And he brought destruction to the city of Jerusalem. And the walls were destroyed. Remember, it goes from 970 to 570. And in 570, the northern tribes have ceased to exist. The two southern tribes are in ruins. The walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. The Temple Mount has been leveled by Babylon. The nobility and the leading families have been carried into captivity. Why? Well, let me read verses 6 to 9 again. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why? Why has the Lord done this? To this land and this house. Then they will say because they abandoned the Lord their God. 
What did God promise? Blessing for obedience. Discipline for disobedience. I can't tell you how many times I've been up on the Temple Mount a lot. And probably four or five times when I've been up there, I've heard this question from a group I've taken there. Why did God allow this? Why did God do this? And the answer is in 1 Kings chapter 9. God said, this is where my heart is. My eyes are here. I want this to remain. But it will not remain if you disobey me. If you disobey me, I will bring destruction on Jerusalem. Solomon disobeyed. Let me read a snippet of the last 20 years of Solomon's life. 1 Kings 11. We'll talk about this in a week or two. I want to read verses 4 to 6. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. What happened in Solomon's life is that he focused on short-term success the first 20 years. Then he began to coast. Then he allowed spiritual lethargy to set in. And rather than build significant and a legacy, he began to coast more and more and more, and his heart was turned further and further from the Lord. And the long and the short of it is, as the leader goes, so go the people, and the nation followed. Christ follower, what about you? What about me? I want to step back and not just point at Solomon, but I need to look at my own life. Maybe you do as well. I suspect for many of you, rather than focusing on just short-term success, you are focusing on long-term significance and a legacy. If so, well done. May your tribe increase. But maybe for some, it could be that we hear ourselves in this passage. At one time, we were red hot for the Lord. We were on fire for Jesus. And we couldn't do enough or get enough of Jesus. But over time, those hot embers became a little less hot and a little more lukewarm. And those times of prayer became less frequent. And those times of, of personal study became less frequent. And the service to the Lord where we would volunteer, well, other things have pushed that out. And the financial gifts that we would give to the Lord, well, now we need them for other things for ourselves. And, and the things of God become strangely dim. May that not be true for you. May it not be true for me. Rather than rest on our laurels, those short-term successes, we need to build a long-term significance and a legacy in Christ that will way outlast us and will impact the next generation and the generation after that. In this regard, I think of Robert Frost, who passed away in 1963, the poet 
and he had a poem called The Road Not Traveled or Not Taken. In it, he talked about how when you're walking along the path of life, you come to a fork and you've got to lament because you're probably never coming to that fork again. And you can go left and it will have an impact in your life. Or you can go right and it will have a different impact in your life. But there are a number of forks and you've got to take the road not taken, the road less traveled, the road that matters. And I think as Christ followers, we rightly focus on the preeminent fork. But I think it's to our detriment that we don't realize that there are multiple forks in life. One preeminent, but many others that matter. The preeminent fork is whether we will choose to believe in Christ as Savior and Lord, or we will choose to reject Christ as Savior and Lord. Jesus talks about that fork in Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14. I'm going to read it because I've memorized it a different way and and, uh, well, I think I memorized it, the King Jeff version. And so I'm going to read it so it's a, a little more authoritative. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And from those two verses... We realize afresh the necessity of each one of us coming to a point in our life where, as Brian shared this morning, we know that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we confess, we agree with God about our sin and the power of God's Spirit. We begin to turn from sin and we accept Christ as the Lord of our life. And we begin to grow in Christ. That's the preeminent fork. But it's not the only fork. Paul says, then we work out that salvation with fear and trembling. And we're constantly coming to forks in the road. Will we choose God or will we choose the world? Will we choose God's morality? That intimacy is only between a husband and a wife in a marriage relationship. Or will we choose the path of the world that says intimacy is fine in any way at any time? Will we choose God who says that we are to work heartily under the Lord? Or will we choose the world that says we work only for a paycheck or if we don't get caught we can sloth? Will we choose God who says that he is an unlying God in 1 Titus 2 and we are to be imitators of him? Or will we choose the world that says that a little gray lie or a little white lie, it doesn't really matter? think what happened in Solomon's life is he started well. He started with red-hot embers, and then he he focused on that short-term success, and he began to coast, and he didn't focus on long-term significance and legacy, and he coasted further and further and further away from God. The Christian life, the Christian landscape, is filled with individuals who have started well and have faded fast. Who among us cannot name such a person? And if we are such a person, will today be the day that we say enough? Enough of this lukewarm embers. I'm going to do what it takes to get back in track and in live with the Lord 
and spend the time with the Lord and make the Lord the priority of my life. I remember when I was in college and an undergraduate, uh, I went to college as a business major and took 40 credits of business. Hated 40 credits of business. I also took 40 credits of history. Loved that. Most of it was reformational history. And whenever I had an election, or a, 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 um, elective, not an election, an elective, I would take something from the New Testament, and, and I also took a lot of Greek. Well, my New Testament and my Greek were all from the same professor. He was my favorite. If I could have majored in that, I would have, but my father said, no, you're going to go to seminary, you need to major in something other than Bible or Greek. You can do that in grad school or doctoral studies, you cannot do it in college, so I followed his advice. It was actually very good advice. But Whenever I could take one of those electives, I took from Dr. Mead. Dr. Mead was just a brilliant Bible scholar. He could make the scriptures come alive. He loved the Lord. In my junior year, he opened up the basement of his house for eight of us to live there. And so my junior and senior year, eight guys lived in the basement of Dr. Mead's house. When Betty Ann and I got engaged, after calling our parents, we went to the Mead's house and asked Dr. Mead and his wife if they would do our premarital counseling. If there had been a Dr. Mead groupie, I might have been the president kind of embarrassing. I look back with so silliness. But, but I just I idolized the guy. And just before I graduated and we were getting married and going off to grad school, I was doing something with Dr. Mead and I don't remember what, but I remember what he said. And it arrested me and it changed my view on where he was spiritually. He said, Jeff, when you get to a certain level in your walk with the Lord, you no longer need to pray as much or study scripture as much. No, not at all, not ever. And I graduated and, and I stayed in contact with him. And, and this man that was this pillar began to slide further and further and further and further and further from the Lord. And about three years later, the school that I had been at that he was a professor a tenured professor, fired him. That's hard to do because he was no longer all that orthodox. And then he went into a mainstream, mainline denomination and he continued more and more spiritual drift further and further and further and further away. And I wonder if I could talk to Dr. Mead today and I could ask him, what caused you to move from being red hot for Jesus to being just lukewarm at very best. I doubt he would be able to put his finger on it. I think he would probably have to say it was just spiritual drift. He somehow thought that he had arrived, that his short-term successes would carry him the rest of the way through, and so he rested on his laurels. And by resting on his laurels, he prayed less and he studied less 
And he was with the fellowship of the believers less. There was less accountability in his life. And he went from red hot to lukewarm at very best. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. Someone asked me this morning, we were interacting. He said, actually, I was going to ask you this question, but then I had answered it in the sermon he had videotaped. He said, uh, I've been reading Ecclesiastes. I wondered when Solomon wrote it. I think he wrote it at the end of his life. But Ecclesiastes is about the last 20 years of his life. When he gave up living for the Lord and he began to focus on living on the past, the short-term success, rather than be building a long-term legacy and significance. And you know what happens in Ecclesiastes. It's all about wine, women, and song. It's all about buildings and, and more. It's all about living under the S-O-N and the S-U-N. It's about living without the Lord. Let me read how Ecclesiastes begins. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2, the words of the preacher, the son of David, who's the son of David, Solomon, king of Jerusalem. That pretty much nails it. It's Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's the refrain that's found over and over and over again in the book. Vanity, it's the Hebrew word hebel. It talks about something that appears to be real, significant, but over time it just pops. There's no value whatsoever. All right, that was less than impressive. <laughs> Bubbles, they appear to be real, but then they pop. That's Hebel, that's the Hebrew word vanity. That's what he discovered. And do you remember how he finishes the book in chapter 12, 13, and 14? He said, hear the conclusion of the entire matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the summation of the responsibility of man. So after 20 years of living on his laurels, of no longer building significance, of no longer building a legacy. At the end of his life, he says, you know what? I had more opportunity, more wealth, more power to do anything on earth than all of us combined in this room. I had it all, said Solomon, and it was Havel, it was vanity. It was like a soap bubble that pops. And so let me tell you what the conclusion is. Fear God and keep his commandments. Build long-term significance, long-term legacy, or in the words of Frost, take the road rarely traveled. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the life of Solomon, a number of highs, and now we get to the point of the book where there's some lows. And Lord, we confess that we could readily learn from both and help us to do so. Father, we don't want to build our lives 
on past short-term successes. We don't want to take the road heavily traveled. We want to take the road less traveled, the road of Christ. And Father, if we have allowed those red-hot embers to become lukewarm, arrest that today and empower us today to turn back to you and to build significance, spiritual significance, to build a spiritual legacy for our betterment and your great glory. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.